our discussion for today. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for the blessing of worship. Thank you for the command to worship. Thank you that you draw us into worship and you have given us uh, the merits and the intercession of Jesus Christ uh, so that our worship can be accepted in your sight. And you give us your spirit to fill our hearts uh, with worship and song. And so help us today, O Lord, uh, by that same spirit uh, to worship you, to think about what it is that we do when we come into your presence and how you have called us to do that and how we can give full voice to the joy that we find in the gospel. Help us, O Lord, to uh, know more about you and to see more of our Savior because of our study today. Build us up and encourage us in the faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start a little bit differently today. We are uh, going to talk, uh, we're beginning our study through the, the various elements of worship. Today we're going to be dealing with worship through song, and so I figured we would start by simply singing the doxology together. So uh, let me move that. Uh, but please sing with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. So here we are, beginning our study of the elements of worship, um, and rather than following the outline as we find it in the Westminster Confession as to the things that ought to take place in worship, I figured we would begin with the most contentious, uh, which, uh, strangely enough, is also the one that we often think of as uh, the, the primary act of worship, at least the things that we're doing. If you were in a a very large church with lots of pastoral staff. Very often, sometimes, uh, those churches will have worship pastors. Uh, not that they're the ones who lead all the worship, but very often they're the ones who lead the singing and coordinate uh, the way the liturgy goes together. And we, we put a lot of emphasis when we think of how do we worship, what are we engaged in when we worship, uh, we think a lot about the way that we worship through song. But as I said, it's also one of the areas of the largest contention among the churches. Uh, do you worship? And, and you can tell a lot about a church, by the way, uh, by the questions that they ask. Um, on the far conservative side, you'll have churches that say, well, is it, is it right at all ever to sing hymns? Or should we only uh, sing a cappella? Should, should we only sing psalms? Should we use accompaniment? Or should it be a cappella? Should it be uh, contemporary styles or traditional styles? Are there certain uh, elements, do we need a choir or a band or instruments that are good or bad, and we clash an awful lot on these things. The, the term for this in the last several decades, although it seems to be dying down, is the worship wars. And you had people writing books about uh, the worship wars and how it's playing out in evangelical circles and all that sort of thing. So uh, it's, it's certainly a live question, this idea of how we worship through song. Uh, but it is uh, central, I think, to our worship of the Lord, and, and we'll get into seeing uh, some of what the scriptures have to say about the way that we worship. But first, I want you simply to think about the phenomenon of music itself. 
And one of the fun things for me as a pastor in this church is that we are a church uh, that has a wide spectrum of different kinds of people in the, based on the way that they think about things and approach the world. We have quite a few engineering types uh, in our congregation, and we have quite a few uh, more artistic types in our congregation. Very often, sometimes, those engineering types and artistic types are married to one another, and I get to see some of the conversations that play out as they think and they approach things just in different ways. Uh, thinking about things sort of from a bottom line, addressing the problem and taking care of this sort of thing, to, uh, to thinking more fluidly and, and the way that, that our feelings interact with things and, and perception and all these sorts of ideas. Excuse me? Sure, I, I'm thinking of the word holistic. Uh, and uh, thank you for getting the bottom line on that one, Rob. Thank you for the uh, visual aid. Uh, <laughs> now imagine, thank you, imagine that, uh, that we lived in a world, and it's hard to wrap our minds around, imagine that we lived in a world where when God was creating everything and putting humans uh, together and giving us uh, our, our image of God, he decided let's just do the bottom line and let's Let's not have anything artistic in a sense. Let's not have music and expression and things like that. Can you imagine what the world would be like if it was just sort of flat like that? Uh, we would exist, I'm sure, uh, but there'd be something missing. Um, T. David Gordon, uh, in his little book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, uh, talks about the fact that music is a distinctly human experience. He chronicles that there are some estimated 3,000 people groups in the world. If you separate them out in, in terms of cultures and languages and areas and things like that, and of those 3,000, many of them are without written language, but none of them is without music. So wherever you find people, you find music. Now we can go to Genesis chapter 4 and we can see where that began. Uh, there was Jubal, who was the father of all those who played the, the lyre and the lute. Uh, or the, the flute, I think. Um, and so it, it, it is in the beginning, in sort of God's uh, chronicle of foundations of human society, music is right there. Uh, he also cites uh, a neurologist, who's also a musicologist, uh, Daniel Levitan, uh, who says that only the human brain, now we're talking about uh, organic brains here, not artificial intelligences, only the human brain can conceive of musical intervals. Other animals can tell pitch, they can tell if a sound is high or low, but the human brain is particularly constructed to understand intervals and relations, not even necessarily tied to pitch. So we recognize tunes, which is why if you're putting your kids to bed, you can sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star in the, in the key of D one night and the key of F the next night, but they recognize it, not because the pitch is different, but because the tune follows the same interval. And, and it's this distinctly uh, human experience. And the Lord could have ordained that our faith is expressed and that we should worship in any way that he pleased. He could have had as his goal mere cognition, that we should come in and we read simply a litany, a checklist of all the things that we need to know, uh, and we write them down, we file them away in our brains, and we leave here, and, and, uh, and that's it. And the Lord could have put worship together. We're talking about something that's instituted by the Lord, remember. Uh, could have put worship together in, in sort of a flat way, a, a sort of bottom line approach, but he didn't. Uh, he actually calls us to worship 
uh, in the form of song. It's part of the richness of our humanity. It's part of the richness of God's blessing to his people. Now, here's my disclaimer about these things. Uh, I haven't yet gotten very poetic, but the, the little bit of, uh, of poeticism that might have been in what I've already said is about as far as I can go. Uh, I am not one of those uber-artistic uh, poetical types. Uh, so I, I get a little perturbed when pastors will sometimes say, well, I'm a pastor, but I'm not a theologian. Wrong. Uh, your job as a pastor is to be a theologian. But, but I'm okay to say I'm a pastor, but I, I'm, I'm not a, a musical genius. I, I feel competent to lead the congregation uh, in song and in worship when we're together, but I'm not one of these people who, uh, who has my mind wrapped around the way the, the uh, human experience coincides with music and all these other things, which is just to say that we need to rely on some other people today. We need to go specifically to a text. Uh, so that's what we're going to spend the majority of our time doing today. We're going to read and study together one of the psalms that talks about the value of giving praise to the Lord. We're going to read specifically, you know, we could go to lots of different places, but we're going to read Psalm 92. Everybody grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 92. And once you've got that open, I want to give you another question to think about. Uh, last week, at the beginning, I asked an obvious question and then asked you to back it up. Uh, with scripture. Uh, the question last week was, does God care how we worship? And if so, how do you know that? Well, here's another obvious question. Um, does God care about the way that we sing in worship and what we sing in worship? And if so, how do you know that? What do you know from scripture? We're talking about worship as something instituted and limited and prescribed by the Lord, and we believe that worship through song is one of those elements. So what do you know from Scripture? Just examples, sort of big picture, anything that comes to mind. What do you know from God's Word that would convince us that God cares deeply how we worship Him through song? What do you think? Ronnie? Okay. So we see pictures in Scripture of heavenly hosts praising the Lord. A good case can be made, certainly from Revelation, but other places like Isaiah chapter 6, uh, depending on how you, you look at it and, and, and the poeticism of it, uh, that when the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that this is a, this is a song. And, and we see when the angels show up, they praise the Lord, they sing the song to, uh, to the shepherds in Bethlehem, uh, and we see them in heaven. Uh, and so it's this sort of heavenly activity that God has designed, not only humans, but angels as well, heavenly beings, uh, to worship him through song. So the Lord cares about that sort of thing. Great. Brian. Well, there is, sure, I think um, it's not specifically angels, but in, uh, in Revelation it talks about um, the elders and the living creatures, and it says they sang a new song, and so 
So whoever those creatures are, depending on how we interpret that, uh, there's, there's some sort of heavenly something. But yeah, that's a, a good thing to think about, that it does say that they said these things. And you know, some of, of the difference in how we conceive of these things, we'll talk probably in a little bit about uh, what some scholars believe to be Christ hymns in the New Testament. Uh, and it's hard to, to wrap our minds around, well, are these hymns, or is it just some of Paul's poetical language? There's, right, 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 right. Yeah, so good, good food for thought there. Yeah, Jay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're reaching the limits of my understanding of, of music there. So, yeah, so creatures are not timeless. Yep, yep, creatures are created in time. And it does say, that's part of the, the specifically heavenly picture of, of what we'll be doing before the Lord. It, it talks about uh, the 144,000 singing a new song. It says we will sing the song of, of Moses and the Lamb. They're singing in heaven uh, in our uh, ongoing eternity in, in God's presence. Teresa? Hmm. Well, uh, we certainly know that the Lord approves of his singing because we've got this big chunk of scripture right in the middle of our Bibles, uh, the songs of David uh, that, that come to us as uh, as God-approved songs, and very often you'll see that uh, in those little subheadings at the beginning of our psalms uh, for the choir master, uh, to be sung on certain occasions, you know, all of these other things. And the Lord has given us these psalms as expressions of our spirituality, ways that we express how we interact with the Lord, and that's what we're going to see from Psalm 92 today. Consider the fact, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bill. Consider the fact that, uh, that when the Lord instituted worship in the Old Testament, there were two classes of, uh, of people who facilitated worship. There were the priests and there were the Levites. Now, most of the work of the priests and the Levites had to do with sacrifice and prayer. It was the priest who stood and offered prayers on behalf of the people. It was the priest who offered the sacrifice. And then it was the Levites who made sure that everything was taken care of so the priests could do their praying and their sacrificing. But there was also another element of the Levites that the Lord set, a, excuse me, set aside and said they were to lead the song. So the Lord, as part of preparing his people for temple and tabernacle worship, sets aside one portion of the Levites to say, okay, there are some people that will carry these things from place to place. There are some people that will make sure that the wood is cut uh, and the wicks are trimmed. There are other people that will make sure that God's people are able to sing before him. God actually makes provision for that. Uh, and he doesn't make provision for a lot of the things that we might think of as, as being in worship, but he makes sure that there is song in worship. Absolutely. Bill, was there one more thing you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I will sing and make melody. 
Uh, and that's, that's sort of, you know, we get the word jubilation from that name Jubal, who was the father of all those who played the flute. Uh, and there's a sense of jubilation in there, uh, that part of the richness of our spiritual experience is that God has given us songs to sing. Uh, and we're going to see that today in Psalm 92. A few things that you'll notice uh, about this psalm, uh, and honestly, it's hard to pin down, well, where do we go? Which psalm do we pick to talk about uh, how wonderful it is to sing before the Lord? I think Psalm 92 is good. You'll see the, uh, the subheading there. It says it's a psalm, that is a song. It's a song for the Sabbath. So here was one that was meant to be uh, part of Israel's regular worship. And it also talks, in the beginning, uh, it will show us some of the, the goodness of singing to the Lord. So here's Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So there are a few things that we notice uh, about this psalm, probably right away. And what I'd like to do, I have a, a few excurses that we might go on, uh, little uh, sidetracks to talk about uh, what it is to worship through song and how worship through song has happened uh, throughout the ages for God's people. Uh, but I just want to walk through what we see in this passage. I uh, want to pull out what does this psalm reveal about how we ought to sing to the Lord. Um, so there's a theme here, uh, and uh, this is just from the Reformation Study Bible, so if you have it, uh, there's, there's actually a structure to this psalm. Uh, that the main point, like many psalms, like many uh, Hebrew poems, the main point's right in the middle. Uh, it works up to and works out of all things that, that show up right in the middle. Right in the middle, and this one is, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Uh, it says that on either side of that verse, there are seven lines with 52 words. First seven lines with 52 words that affirm um, uh, the fleeting nature of the prosperity of the wicked, uh, and then seven lines uh, with 52 words that affirm the downfall of the wicked and then the ultimate prosperity of the godly. But right in the middle, so that here's the point. It begins by saying it's good to give thanks to the Lord and praise to the Lord, and it finds its pinnacle uh, in talking about the fact that the Lord is exalted. 
Now, what are some of the things that we see in this passage that would help us understand how are we to worship the Lord in song? Is there anything that jumps out at you as you read that? This? Okay. What do you mean by that, Rob? Use this one. Yeah. Uh, so there's a good point. Uh, we ought to be singing psalms in our worship. Now, there is question when you get into um, how strictly we interpret the Westminster Confession. Uh, the Westminster Confession seems to say uh, that the only element in song that is appropriate in Christian worship are psalms. It does not even use uh, the, the language from Ephesians of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there is a difference among Presbyterians on how we ought to interpret that and what it means, but certainly we ought to be singing psalms. Now, if you've been around Redeemer for a number of years, you know that, oh, it was before I came on staff, and I think I might have been an intern, but we began using the Psalter in worship as well. Uh, we, we've used the Trinity Hymnal for years, uh, and it's put out by uh, the joint committees by the OPC and the PCA as you know, good spiritual songs and hymns that Reformed people can use. But we were also convicted uh, that we ought to be singing psalms themselves, and so we began to use the Psalter. Uh, so that's a good point, uh, that we ought to be singing psalms to the Lord. So here's, here's one thing we ought to be doing. What else do you notice from this passage that informs us as to, to how we ought to be praising the Lord or, or what good hymns or songs uh, might have in common in worship? Ronnie? They're using instruments. Okay. Yep. Stringed instruments. Okay. Okay. Uh, they're using stringed instruments. Yep. Uh, and there was an awful lot of instrumentation in the temple worship uh, in, uh, in Old Testament Israel. Uh, specifically, what you would see if you were in the temple and, and worshiping there, uh, songs showed up in two places primarily. It showed up as you were approaching the temple, uh, as you were entering into worship, and then it showed up again as the sacrifice was being burned. Uh, you can find, I believe it's Psalm 26, I hope, Psalm 26, this is a psalm of David. It says in verses 6 and 7, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Uh, and so many commentators have looked at that and said, well, this is a description of temple worship. We also know from some of the documents that, uh, that the Israelites have left behind that this is what happened. Uh, maybe not necessarily that people went around, physically around the altar, uh, but that when the sacrifice was being burned, that was a time of song. And specifically, there was a lot of instrumentation. Now, when the temple was destroyed and the people were exiled and worship became primarily a system of synagogue worship, they did not have instrumentation. Uh, it was all a cappella, uh, and the people would gather together and they would sing uh, just the psalms together, uh, and, and the early church, uh, from the best we can guess, followed that same practice. The synagogue service was a very simple service. It basically was comprised of prayers and reading and expositing scripture uh, and singing some of these psalms. And, and if you were probably in a house church, 
uh, in, in first century Christianity, that's probably what you would have seen. It would have looked an awful lot like a synagogue service. It's interesting, interesting that for the majority of Christian history up until the ninth century, I want to say, uh, there were no instruments in Christian worship either uh, until the advent of the organ uh, in which you, you began to see that coming back into practice. Um, and so for a large swath of Christian history and, and the worship of God's people, there was no instrumentation. Uh, although here it specifically talks about instrumentation. And we think of other, other psalms like Psalm 150 that speaks of uh, the value of all sorts of instruments. Uh, and, you know, you want to talk about worship wars. Uh, some of the things that we see in there, would we, would we have all of those things and symbols? And, you know, heaven forbid we have symbols in Christian worship, right? Uh, but, you know, these things are in there, yeah. So, so that's an important thing to note. Gene, what do you see in that passage? Why are we still singing hymns? That's a great question. Uh, the basic approach to that has been um, that there is so much, uh, especially in Isaiah, in Revelation, uh, where, it, where we are commanded to sing a new song. Now, uh, I will concede that if we are taking a strict interpretation of the Westminster, they intended for us to sing only psalms. Um, and I'm willing to say that I disagree with that um, because I think that, that there's a richness of Christian hymnody uh, in the sense that it, it would fall into, uh, we talked last time about the difference between elements, forms, and circumstances. Uh, I think that uh, the element is song and songs of praise and that as long as they are biblically sound, it's a legitimate form to sing good Christian hymns in our worship. Just like we would say, well, the Lord has given us good prayers uh, in his scripture, uh, but he's also called us to, to pray about all things and, and all sorts of things, and so we have different forms of prayer where we're not simply reciting scripture. We do, we, we pray together, uh, the Lord's Prayer, um, but we, we have some prayers that represent our own spiritual experience. And I think that's one of the things that we find, even in this psalm, uh, that the psalmist is talking about an expression of experiencing God's deliverance. So, so that's the general line of thinking. It's interesting, you know, when you ask that question, um, at the time of the Reformation, um, there was a split between the Lutherans and the Reformed, uh, and we spoke a little bit last time about the regulative principle um, and the way that that split happened, but it also happened in the hymnody. Uh, you saw the Lutheran churches taking off and writing all sorts of hymns. It was one of the chief vehicles for getting the doctrines of the Reformation out to the masses. Uh, but in Reformed churches, you generally didn't see that. Uh, it was much more simple, uh, although there were hymns being written, uh, particularly in Strasbourg, uh, under Martin Bucer, they, they had a revival of psalmody, but also hymnody. Uh, Calvin went the other direction. Uh, he was very strictly psalms in worship. And Westminster tends to follow the, the Calvin line of worship, uh, although you get, you know, in Reformed circles, say, Isaac Watts. Uh, and there's a resurgence under Isaac Watts of what we would call Christian paraphrases of hymns, or I'm sorry, of psalms. And that was part of his ministry. He, he put together a uh, a, a collection of psalms and hymns is what they were called, 
uh, and he told us very explicitly in the introduction to that work that what he was trying to do was, was not necessarily to translate the Psalms so that we could sing them, but to paraphrase them so that we can see more clearly the doctrines uh, that, are, that are there. Uh, I've got a good uh, example of that. Um, everybody turn to Psalm 72. So by the time we're talking about Isaac Watts, we're looking at the 18th century. So he's in the 1700s and writing some of these things. Um, so here's how Psalm 72 begins. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. So that's the psalm. But Isaac Watts uh, wrote a paraphrase, and here's how his paraphrase of Psalm 72 begins. Jesus shall reign, where'er the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moon shall wax and wane no more. So it's still God giving justice to his king, establishing the kingdom of his son, and, and through Isaac Watts and some of those others who came after him, uh, although Newton was... I think Newton might have been after him. Uh, you see other men latching on to these psalms and the themes of the psalm and saying, you know, we're Christians uh, and, and we want to worship Christ specifically. Not that Christ is not in the Psalter, that's not uh, the insinuation, but, but how can we get the theme of the psalm uh, and also the, the clarity of what Christ has done? And so, in our church, we follow that line of thinking. Uh, but I'll concede, if, if we're going to be very strict regulative principalists and very strict Westminster confessionalists, uh, we would probably have to say that it only tells us to sing psalms. Any other questions about that? So here again is where you can see uh, a lot about a church based on the questions they're asking. What are the questions we're asking? Why are we singing hymns? There are other churches that would say, why should we sing psalms? We have so many great hymns, why should we bother with the psalms? That's Old Testament stuff. Uh, and this, this, I think, should show us a lot about uh, what our church is. Thank you for that question, Gene. Yeah, Scott. Yes. They're declarative? Okay. Good. So notice what, what Scott has brought out there. We're back in Psalm 92 now. Um, psalm 92. Notice the audience for the psalm. And this is what Scott's telling us. Uh, it talks of the Lord in uh, the third person. It's good to thank, give thanks to the Lord, but then the majority of the rest of this is in the second person. To give thanks to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love, uh, in the morning, and your faithfulness by night. This is a song addressed to the Lord. Uh, we, are, we are directing our praises to him where they ought to be, uh, and, and we are talking about what he has done. And it's a reflection of, of the greatness of the Lord. Now, you mentioned proclamation. Is it ever right in our singing, in our hymnody, or in the Psalms, to speak to others about what the Lord has done? Is it okay if a song 
doesn't address the Lord directly, but speaks to others about the Lord. David does? Where? Okay. Yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are lots of examples um, uh, that we find. Um, Psalm 96. It's on the same page if you've got an ESV open. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This is all third person. It seems to be that he's addressing others and saying, let's talk about how good God is. He's looking at God, and he's, it's an invitation in a sense, or a command. Yeah, uh, join me in, in praising the Lord. Uh, but it's not like writing a love letter to the Lord. Uh, oh, Lord, you are good, and, and your works, and, and all these other things. That, that there is a legitimacy in our hymns that, that it's not only directed straight at God, but sort of by proxy that we gather one another and stir up one another's faith to praise the Lord as well. Yeah, good. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. And so you, you see that, and, and here's a, a non-Psalter example um, of another song in Scripture. And they're really, when you start to look for them, they're peppered all throughout the Scriptures. Uh, and they show up in different forms. Uh, but, but all of it is engaging God's people to see and to express uh, God's glory. Now, this psalm, Psalm 92, says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name on high. That's a pretty broad statement. You know, if you were teaching an English class and someone was writing a paper and they called everything good, you'd say, you need to find some better words. Uh, get a thesaurus or something uh, and get a, a little bit wider vocabulary. So what's so good about singing to the Lord? Does this psalm help us to understand anything about that? Is it just subjectively good? Objectively good? Is it good because it's edifying? Is it what is it? We're getting there, Rob. Let it steep for a little bit. Bill. I think that would be legitimate. Yeah, so, so what happens at the end here, Bill? Absolutely. And I think there is an indication throughout all of this. Um, you know, Scott, again, you mentioned the idea that a, a song, a good song, is, is meant to proclaim God's glory. That's what we see through the whole thing, isn't it? It's talking about the works the Lord has done. It's talking about the things that he has accomplished and saying, here's why it's good to sing to the Lord, because this accords with reality. 
Do you notice the problem that we find in this psalm? This is not an imprecatory psalm. This is not one of the ones where, oh, Lord, call down fire and, and all these things from heaven and destroy the enemy. But he does say, I've seen the enemy, I've seen the wicked. And the fool doesn't understand that though they sprout up like grass, they will be destroyed. And the Lord destroys all his enemies. And it's talking about what the Lord is able to do. And it's saying, look, other people don't understand this. They don't understand the reality of what God is doing in the world that he has created. That's why it's good for us to sing praises to the Lord because it aligns our heart with the reality of what God is doing. It's another way of us praising him. And so, yeah, when you get to the end, uh, to declare that the Lord is upright. There's a declaration aspect to our singing and to our hymnody and to our, our worship through song, to declare who he is, to put the, the focus on him. I saw two other hands, Jay and Cynthia, and then over to Rob. Cynthia? Yeah. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it, just as you know, food for thought. So maybe instead of vague, we, we should call it broad. That's a broad term. That encompasses many different things. Uh, it is good because it speaks of the glory of the Lord and, and aligns us with the reality and, and a lot of other things that draws our attention to his justice uh, and some of these other great themes that we find in, in Scripture and, and song there. Jay? And uh, there was morning, there was evening, uh, and the Lord declared that it was good, that it was right. Uh, I, I like the way that you're putting that, that it accords with exactly the way the Lord has planned these things. So it is objectively good uh, that the Lord has commanded us to sing. Um, and, and when we do that, we give vent to the joy that we find. Notice uh, there's a structure in these first few verses. Uh, and you can, you can see um, verses 1 through 4, it's good to, and it starts to, to list a whole bunch of things that it's good to do, to give thanks, to sing praises, to declare, and uh, to do that by the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. And then in verse 4, we get the foundation, the basis statement. For, it's good to do all of these things. Why? For... You, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. This is why it's good, because it does give vent to our spiritual experience of the Lord. Has he filled our hearts with joy? Let's sing to him. Uh, and, and I think James says it. Uh, if any of you is, and here's the paraphrase. I'm sorry, I don't have it right on the, uh, on the tip of my tongue or written down here. Uh, but James speaks of, uh, if is anyone among you suffering? Uh, let him uh, offer praise. If anyone among you is rejoicing, uh, let him sing praises. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have that exact quote for you. Um, hopefully you can, you can find it later. Um, but, but there's something here that, what do we do? And sometimes it, it's almost just sort of a, a non-cognitive reaction. When you're feeling good, you sort of, 
put the spring in your step, and you, you've got that little humming thing, or maybe like me, you whistle. Uh, but but there's, there's sort of a, a desire to express through melody and song the experience we have that, that is joyful. And, and the psalmist says here, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because you filled my heart with joy. And, and when I sing to the Lord, that joy gets out. Uh, that's part of my expressing who the Lord is. Another one, Scott? Harmonious, okay. Yeah, excellence is not always, or not really ever, a bad thing. Um, my wife has been reading this book uh, that I haven't read, uh, so I'm, I'm taking her word for it, um, but it's a, a book by Shauna Murray, uh, David Murray's wife. It's a companion to a book that I've handed out to several of you already, men. Uh, the, the men's version is called Reset. The women's version is called Refresh, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. But in the end, uh, in this book, it talks about the difference between excellence and perfectionism. At least this is a summary I, I got from Sarah. And excellence is a good thing. Perfectionism is the wrong thing. Perfectionism puts the, the focus on us and what we can achieve. Uh, but excellence, especially in our praise and our worship, uh, is about the, the sacrifice of our hearts to the Lord uh, in wanting to do the best that we can to offer to him the best that we have. And, and there's a difference there. And, and excellence is good. Now, Sometimes in worship, does it ever cross over into performance when those people are, are giving a wonderful offering and, wow, it's, it's great, and everybody knows that it's great, and even at Redeemer, we're tempted to clap when it's done. Uh, sometimes it might, um, but, but a lot of that uh, depends on whose heart is involved. Uh, we might look with our callous hearts and say, this person's just performing, uh, but the person doing it might have excellence in view uh, and, and giving, uh, I don't know how, how else to say it, giving expression to the joy that they feel uh, in serving the Lord. So excellence in worship is a good thing. Um, and, and you can tell, you know, there's a big difference when you go from a church where singing is done well and joyfully to a church where everybody pulls out their hymnal and they kind of mumble through it. And some of that we might say, well, maybe that congregation just isn't musically gifted. There are some congregations that are musically gifted. I think ours is one of them. Uh, that we've got great singers, we've got great musicians, um, and there are some congregations that might just not be as gifted. Uh, but there's, there's got to be an element of joy in pursuing excellence in these things. And melody's part of it. That's a good thing to have in worship, yeah. yeah. 
something else that you, you've... Is your hand still up, Rob? What did you want to say? Thank you. Sorry. My, my apologies, my sincere apologies. Yeah, um, and so notice even the, the poetic language toward the end. Uh, there's imagery all throughout, and a lot of it is agricultural. Uh, the wicked sprout like grass, right? Um, but the righteous flourish like the palm tree. Uh, there's there's uh, a steadfastness that happens in the lives of the righteous, and they are bearing fruit. The fruit is the worship. Uh, and, and I would say, um, you know, when we're getting to that last stanza, uh, the psalmist is not contrasting, uh, okay, here's why it's bad to be a wicked person, and here's why it's good to be a righteous person. Uh, but it continues on the theme of the song, which is right in the middle, that the Lord is the one who is on high. Notice what it says about the righteous after that. You have exalted, what does exalted mean? You've raised, you've lifted up my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured fresh oil over me. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. And it goes on to talk about flourishing like a palm tree and growing like a cedar and planted in the house of the Lord and flourishing the courts and bearing fruit and evergreen. But it all comes from the Lord who is high. If we are to be exalted at all, it comes from him. So praise, in a sense, is counting our blessings and the, thing the, Lord, the things the Lord has done. What does it say in the beginning? It's good to give praises to your name. Um, you have made me glad. Verse 4, you've made me glad by your work and the works of your hands. From the beginning to the end, the psalmist isn't switching. He's not saying in the beginning, well, the works of your hands are good, but it's also good that I'm flourishing. No, no, no. It's good that your works have made me flourish, that you who are high have lifted me up. And that's part of our praise. It's a recognition of what the Lord has done for us and in us. Good. Now, there, there's another aspect here um, that I wanted to bring up, which, which I think is one of the reasons that it's so good to sing the psalms uh, and not just the modern hymns that we have, because there is a breadth to the psalms that, quite frankly, most of us are uncomfortable composing on our own. Uh, we see very often in the psalms talk of God's justice, uh, talk of the downfall of the wicked. Uh, when was the last time? And, and I'm sure there are examples, and you can, uh, you can point them out to me later and prove me wrong. I'll, I'll concede that. When was the last time you read or sang a hymn composed by a non-biblical author that praised God for the downfall of the wicked? We don't write songs like that. Uh, but by the inspiration of the Spirit, David did, and the psalmist did, and we find it all throughout uh, take a look again in, in Psalm 96, if you, you've got it open right there. Psalm 96, and it's mirrored in 98, but we'll read 96. Verse 11 through 13. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. This is praise. Not just uh, God's people, but God's creation singing. Uh, Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. If you are one of the wicked people, this is not what you praise the Lord for. You are not glad for judgment. But if you are one of God's people who lives in a world that is broken and fallen, and you can see that brokenness and that fallenness all around you, we ought to praise the Lord at the end of days. He is coming to judge the world in equity and righteousness. All the wrongs that are done now will not stand forever, that the Lord is the judge. That's something that we often don't see. So it's good for us to, to read and to sing the Psalms because they give us a breadth of expression. And there are other things uh, that you might be able to find in the Psalms that, that we don't sometimes uh, latch on to. Now, I want to end, and we're almost at that time, Uh, I want to end by us singing Psalm 92 together. Uh, Hopefully you've got a Psalter. Uh, I think we've we've touched on a lot of the things, maybe not in the order that I had planned, but a lot of the things that that, uh, we were thinking about today. Um, I just want to encourage you that that this isn't isn't just an Old Testament thing, uh, that we do find Paul in the New Testament uh, telling us that we ought to sing. Not only is... Worship through song, an expression of our, our human experience. But Paul speaks of song as a distinctly spiritual experience. And, and by that, a holy spiritual experience. Ephesians 4, don't be drunk with wine wherein is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the language there, similar to the language in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. That singing there is part of the the mechanism of allowing God's word to dwell in our hearts richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly, teaching and admonishing and singing. How does the word of Christ dwell? Well, we teach, we admonish, we sing. It's part of proclaiming to ourselves and to one another who the Lord is and what he's done. Uh, And it is explicitly an an experience of the Spirit in our lives that we should be filled and that overflow should happen as we we sing to the Lord. So we're going to sing Psalm 92 together. Uh, The tune is familiar. Uh, The tune is Rejoice the Lord is King. Psalm 92. Once you stand together, uh, and you'll notice uh, that through the five verses, this is another good reason that we sing uh, from a Psalter and not just from paraphrases, we're singing the whole psalm. Uh, It's a metrical version, but we are singing the entirety uh, of Psalm 92 together by the time that we get through these five verses. Um, Who are my musical people who can help us here? It's good to thank...
Lord, make me glad. I'll sing of what you've done. How great your works, O Lord. How deep your thoughts each one. A senseless man, devoid of knowledge, this truth will not understand. All sinners grow like grass, the wicked multiply, and yet they'll be destroyed, but Lord, you stay on high. Your foes, Lord, fall. Your foes will perish. Evildoers scattered all. You've poured oil on my head like oxen I'm made strong. I've seen and heard the fate of those who've done me like driving palm, the righteous grows like cedars tall in Lebanon. Those planted by the Lord will in God's courts be seen. Old, they'll still bear fruit and flourish fresh and this proclaim how upright is the Lord my rock no wrong in him let's pray together folks gracious Lord our God indeed you are high uh, you are the one who lifts up our heads you are the one who comes to judge the peoples with equity and it is good that we should come into your presence and sing praises to you, that you should fill our hearts with your spirit and with the melody of song. Help us, O Lord, to rejoice in you. Give us by your spirit full vent to the joy of the gospel, uh, that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. And as we sing, help us to express that righteousness from the Lord, that peace in Christ, that joy of the Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, to be worshipers of you to be all the richer for it, but uh, much more, and to turn one another uh, to you. As David said, that you would put a new song in our mouths that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so, oh Lord, we pray that you would help us. Uh, give us hearts to worship and mouths to sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>